By listening to the Conscious Fertility Podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician or healthcare provider for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Welcome to Conscious Fertility, the show that listens to all of your fertility questions so that you can move from fear and suffering to peace of mind and joy. My name is Lauren Brown. I'm a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine and a clinical hypnotherapist. I'm on a mission to explore all the paths to peak fertility and joyful living. It's time to learn how to be and receive so that you can create life on purpose. Welcome to the Conscious Fertility Podcast. Our expert guest today is Dr. Sean Tregoning. He is a reproductive endocrinologist. He has his clinical practice at the Olive Fertility Center in Surrey, British Columbia. Now, Sean, you're originally from South Africa, if I recall. Yes, that's correct. And I found it fascinating, kind of like just how the different cultures like America, Canada versus South Africa, how we kind of view the body and look at the body. And so I was curious to know that when you, because you did your OBGYN in South Africa. That's correct. Yes, I did my, my residency training in OBGYN in South Africa and then my fellowship training partly in South Africa and partly in the United States. So like, cause you're a reproductive endocrinologist. So yes. when you immigrated over to North America and did it go into the States first and then Canada or how did you? Uh, before I emigrated to Canada, so I did, I did part of my, my fellowship in REI in Cape Town, where I had done my medical training and residency. And then I finished up part of my fellowship at Stanford, but then I went back to South Africa before I emigrated to Canada. But do they, do they require you to do more schooling when you came over or did they accept your medical background training? I did not have to do any more schooling, but any international medical graduate has to redo the Canadian exams, which is the bane of most people's lives, yeah. especially if you're a specialist, because you have to redo the basic medical exam as well, the LMCC, and then you have to, you have to sit your specialist exam again. You know, I always found that interesting because when I think of doctors and South African doctors, I think people kind of trust how you're trained and people kind of like it when they have a doctor that's from South Africa. So it's always interesting that they required you guys to jump more hoops, but say la vie, right? Exactly. And the reason I bring up your, your training background is because I was pleasantly surprised at one of my visits at your clinic in Surrey, BC, when I learned that you have trained in homeopathy. Because I just don't think of a specialist as a reproductive endocrinologist finding that so much of an interest. But your program was for medical experts. It wasn't for the general public, your homeopathy program. That's correct. So that, uh, that program wasn't, uh, wasn't part of what medical school training. Homeopathy as, a, as an alternative form of, of medical treatment in South Africa is fairly ubiquitous. A lot of uh, it's quite easily accessible as it is in Europe. And so a lot of people will, will make use of, of homeopathy. So I didn't have this huge antithesis towards it and didn't know much about it. But constantly, I'm always on the lookout for more ways to expand my approach to a, a patient-centered care philosophy and personally have more of an integrative approach to my clinical practice. And so there is a diploma that can be done in clinical homeopathy, which really centers around physicians, registered nurses, and allied health professionals who have an interest in trying to integrate homeopathy into their clinical practice. And that's a year-long diploma that you do through the Center for uh, the Development of Homeopathy in Clinical Practice. So I did do that, that year-long diploma and particularly, obviously, was looking for strategies on how to integrate that into my practice in fertility. And is there certain, maybe for our listeners, just explaining the homeopathy side, because I think it's aligned with how we think of it from a Chinese medicine perspective, where we're treating the person, not the disease diagnosis. That's similar with homeopathy. And is there certain condition still that you like to use it for in your reproductive practice? That's exactly correct. I mean, homeopathy's whole basis is that you, you don't treat disease, which is very different to the way we trained in allopathic medicine, where you make a diagnosis, you treat, you're very diseased focus, you pick up symptoms and you put together treatment plans to ameliorate and or treat the actual symptoms of the disease process. Homeopathy embraces the idea that disease processes are a manifestation of what's going on in the entire entity of the body. And so you treat the person. So in homeopathy, you would not necessarily treat a symptom of infertility. That infertility may be, or just even if you take an infertility symptom like endometriosis, for example, or recurrent pregnancy loss. 
for somebody who's having recurrent pregnancy loss, maybe having it because there's a variety of constitutional symptoms that have not been addressed and not necessarily because there's a specific problem at the level of the endometrium. So homeopathy takes this broader view of trying to treat the individual and use med homeopathic medicines that try to allow or help and aid the body to heal itself. So it follows this philosophy, probably not unlike that in Chinese medicine, which intuitively says the body was really designed to cure itself. And what we do is to just push it gently, nudge it into the pathways that helps it to do that. And I use that proverb parable from Chinese medicine where they say, nurse the soil before you plant the seed. And that idea is to help create an environment on a cellular level for the organism to thrive. And so how is you, I liked how you put it, you gently nudge it into the pathways to support the healing. And that's, that is the Chinese medicine approach that, for example, just like with homeopathy, um, you could have five individuals with a diagnosis of endometriosis and all five would get a different herbal acupuncture prescription, Correct. right? And then you could have five people with different disease diagnoses, but they get very similar herbal prescription based Correct. on their pattern imbalances or constitution. And again, similar to, I think the homeopathy approach is rather than just attack like the pathogen, we're trying to attack the pathogen and at the same time, build up the body's defense so it can deal with the pathogen. So we're supporting That's the body. Correct. And I know in the West, sometimes we just go to war and attack everything, right? The, the body and the pathogen, we're, we're trying to treat the pathogen and support the body at the same time. That's absolutely correct. And so that's um, really refreshing that you have that thinking process because in training, because you're trained in both styles, like you have the obviously depth of training, you know, MD, OBGYN, REI. So you got years and years of study and then you have your homeopathy, but it's kind of refreshing for me. And I'm sure the people, the patients that see you to know that you have that perspective that there's probably not one size fits all. And you're looking at all the different approaches that are available that you can offer and why I think we see referrals from you is that integration seems to be something that's important to you that you value. I mean, obviously my bias in, in, in my medical training coming from an allopathic background was very, very scientifically biased. And yet throughout that all, one thing that I became so cognizant of is that science cannot answer every question and that no matter what clinical trials you look at, there are always outliers in those clinical trials. So even if you take a trial looking at the efficacy of a drug, there will still be a small proportion of people that will not respond to the drug that will later be deemed to be highly efficacious, but yet in some people will just not work. And the corollary is also true that there will be some cases where you determine an intervention is of no value, and yet there were outliers within a study that derived great benefit from that intervention. And so I don't necessarily believe we always have the final answer just because there's been a randomized controlled trial, because within the concept of that, there are outliers on either side of the bell curve that don't conform accordingly. And sometimes I think we're not totally honest with patients when we tell them something is or isn't scientifically beneficial because we don't often discuss the caveat that was in the boundaries where we arbitrarily chose to set the parameters for statistical significance. And it's that group of people, especially in infertility, that we often deal with, the people who just do not respond despite our best intents. And yet we have to come up with something that offers them more than a wing and a prayer. And I think I've heard you say before, for those that have that poor prognosis, um, sometimes that one little tweak is the difference between having a baby or not having a baby. And you shared with me why you're into integration, the acupuncture, the homeopathy, low-level laser therapy, yes. using it all. Because although the studies may not be robust, you don't know if that little tweak is going to be the difference for that individual. That's exactly right. You never know when that one small tweak will be the difference between success or no success. And sometimes that may also be just because you're offering the patient some hope and some form of intervention, which in the complex system of the organism called a human being might have profound psychological appropriate positive features. So we all know that in randomized placebo-controlled trials, placebos have efficacy. And so we need to remain cognizant of that. That does not mean that the placebo is a useless tool for management. It sometimes means that the tool that you gave the patient was the hope that something could get better. And we sometimes lose sight of the fact that small interventions, instead of saying to somebody, there is no hope, we've done the maximum we can see, when you're actually prepared to sit down and say, let's look at some alternatives, they may not be robust evidence for this, but let's work at some of the things that we can do. That very act itself may change outcome. And I think that's important. 
And although they say the placebo is inert, as in this chemical, this substance has no chemical properties that we're aware of, I find that the brain, and you kind of alluded to this, is the best pharmacy that exists. And so if somebody believes, we know now, this is the Conscious Fertility Podcast. We've had a lot of experts on the mind-body side that your feelings can cause a chemical um, hormonal reaction in the body where dopamine and serotonin, oxytocin, which have health benefits. Absolutely. And in the West, we kind of, um, we've cut the head off from the body, right? And I think it was Descartes, and I don't know if this is true, but the story I I heard is he was at risk of what he was doing with healing the body because it was the church's domain for a lot of stuff. So he gave the church, the spirit, the mind, the feeling stuff, and he just dealt with the body. But traditionally, it was a, a bottom up, top down. So your physical affects your mental, emotional, and your mental, emotional affects the physical. And we're just getting back to that mind-body aspect of medicine where we're acknowledging that we can't separate. That's, that's entirely correct. And even within the area of fertility studies, there's, there have been some really good studies looking at the whole mind-body interaction concept and, that's, and the role that it plays in infertility. And I think you and I were both at, uh, at a conference recently where Ali Doman presented her work, and she's a fairly prolific writer in this area. She's a, a clinical psychologist who spent most of her time working in infertility clinics. And some of the work that she's done is, is quite amazing, quite staggering in terms of just understanding the link between the mind and the body and infertility and how small, small adjustments on a non-drug level can make a huge difference in terms of success and outcome. And the underappreciated thing is the level of depression and anxiety that's associated with infertility. And uh, no matter how many drugs we give people and ovulation induction agents and how many IVF cycles we do, our patients still don't do as well as they could do if we don't address the underlying mind aspect of this. And thanks for mentioning Ali Domar. We have a podcast by her as well, where she talks about the research. And we were at that conference together where the question was, does stress cause infertility? Does infertility cause stress? And her answer was yes, <laughs> right? Correct. It's, right. it's a vicious cycle. And, uh, and so if you're going to go through these treatments, let's make them as positive as possible so you don't have to suffer through it. There's an expression, I don't know who said it, but it, the expression goes, pain is inevitable suffering is not. And so going through the IVF process, or I should say the fertility journey, that's the pain is inevitable. That is not an easy process, but the amount of depression, anxiety, and suffering, um, I think there could be uh, more resources and a better job done. So they, it's not as challenging as it is right now. And as we heard from that data, many people don't end up having babies, not because of the financial stress of the fertility journey, but from the emotional, and they drop out of the fertility journey, the IVF process, and if they just did one more cycle, they might've gotten that take-home baby. Right. So it's an important part to address. The other thing I, I'm interested in is talking about PRP because I'm, I'm getting many patients asking me about it. And uh, so I'd love if you can define it and how you see this as a potential for rejuvenation. You talked about, again, the, the data, where is the data and the science at this point? It's, it seems to be popular in Greece now and some parts of the States. And, and I also want to talk about, if you can, about the lining versus the ovary, because I do know yes. that we have talked about mutual patients and you're one of them. I know that I refer to you that you're going to be talking with or have talked with adamiosis and, and how you use it post-surgery and then for lining issues. So can you kind of give us a nice mind dump on uh, PRP, okay. what it is and, and what is, where it is today and what's the potential? So P PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma, and it is derived from taking blood from a patient, spinning down that blood, separating out the white and red blood cells from the serum and the platelets. So the platelets are the cells within the blood that actually allow clotting to take place. The platelets, however, also contain multiple other granules in them, most notably a whole bunch of cytokines, growth factors, which have huge healing properties. And so finding a way to concentrate that portion of the blood without, without any of the other cells that we don't need was something that was manipulated and explored way back by really in the setting of a rejuvenative joint recovery. So a lot of rheumatologists um, and orthopedic surgeons had an interest were looking at initially at the use of PRP in, in the setting of injecting into, into degenerative joints and showed fairly promising results there. 
then dental and oral, oral, oral maxillofacial oral surgeons picked up on this when they do extensive mouth work and they use PR what's called PRF. It's the, the instead of the plate, uh, platelet-rich plasma, it's platelet-rich fibrin. So you, you allow it to actually clot um, and can be used as a healing tool when they drill deep into bone. And then it kind of extended over from there into plastic surgery and aesthetic medicine where PRP is used for rejuvenative and regenerative things in the aesthetic industry, such as improving fine lines and wrinkles within the face, stimulating collagen production. It can be used to be injected in people who have thinning of the head to try and stimulate hair follicles to improve. And so that's where PRP was. But then obviously PRP is PRP and it doesn't know where in the body it's going to be utilized in any area which may benefit from rejuvenation by injecting growth factors is a potential for PRP use. And so within the area of fertility, where it's really, there are really three big areas where there's been some interest. And the one is in the setting of patients who have embryos, who are doing embryo transfers, but where we cannot get the, end, the endometrial lining to thicken up adequately enough, despite using tons of estrogen, which is what we usually do, or even allowing them to try a natural cycle. They have a chronically thin endometrium, which is usually not a good sign for the likelihood of the embryo to attach. And so this is one area where PRP has been used to do a PRP infusion in the hopes of trying to stimulate the endometrium to whatever that little blockage is that may exist there to now actually start responding to the estrogen and thicken up. So that's the one area. The other area kind of akin to that is in patients who've had trauma at the level of the endometrium, such as if they've had an Asherman syndrome from a vigorous DNC or surgical interventions at the uterus lining, or in patients who may have um, significant adenomyosis, where you may actually have some kind of structural disruption to the endometrial lining. Using the PRP may facilitate healing of that area and lead to a more normalized endometrial environment. And then again, staying with the endometrium is also in patients who've had well, what's called recurrent implantation failure term. We in fertility really struggled to define, but broadly speaking, a consensus of if we've transferred two consecutive chromosomally normal embryos without any evidence of attachment, that would be one. Patients who attach but have very early chemical pregnancies in a repeated fashion. The infusion of PRP in that setting may also normalize the endometrial environment. There's not a whole bunch of data to support the use of PRP in the settings, and the trials that have been published are very mixed. And I think the reason for this is, one, that the patient numbers have been quite small, and so we're looking for really good big trials. But more importantly, there has been no consistency in terms of how the PRP is prepared. And so we don't, we don't know that the product called PRP that's been used in the various trials can actually be compared head to head from one trial to another. And so if you haven't prepared the PRP well, and you've used the substance you've called PRP and you get zero results, have you really used PRP? So this is some of the problems with the, the methodology of the trials that have looked at this. But the trial, in good trials all suggest that there may be a tendency towards improvement. And again, because this certainly is not something that can harm anybody. What you're doing is infusing your own blood back into you. And when you when you stuck with having had no response to anything else or full failed embryo transfers, most people will grasp at any straw that's not going to harm them. And so I have a low threshold to try PRP in a setting. And then the last big area which you mentioned is the ovary. And what has been looked at here is the term of ovarian rejuvenation, that injecting PRP under the capsule area of the ovary might help in women who have decreased egg reserve or are starting to lose their egg quality, that you may be able to rejuvenate the ovary by pumping back the, your own natural growth factors. And so it's usually done the same way we would do an egg retrieval with the same needle. You go subcapsular under the ovary and inject PRP into the ovary. And then a lot of studies, particularly the Greeks, which you alluded to, the, uh, the group of people who did a lot of the initial work on this, have now spoken about doing both the injection under the ovary as well as then infusing a large volume through the uterus in the hopes of bathing the ovary in the pelvis in the PRP straight after the procedure as well. And then there is a group in New York who've also done quite a bit of work on this, and they have a, a clinical trial ongoing at the moment that they're recruiting for. But their preliminary data also suggests that this might be useful in the setting of early ovarian failure, um, people with significant diminished ovarian reserve. So I think we haven't seen the end of this yet. I think there is hope on the horizon for this. And I certainly, again, I offer this to patients when we have nothing else to offer.
because I, I think the date is early, but, but it's a potential. You know, it's the expression, leave no stone unturned. And for this population where they don't have the luxury of five years from now when the study is published and there's lots of data to wait, then right. I can see why people are seeking this out before there's robust data. It reminds me of the photobiomodulation, low-level laser therapy. Just like the PRP, you said it, it, it's safe. And so there's not a, a big down, there's not a real downside except for time and money to do this. And maybe it's a little invasive or uncomfortable. Low-level laser therapy, same idea. There's a little bit of data, but it's not robust. But when you think of the mechanism of increasing mitochondrial function, increasing blood flow, lowering or regulating inflammation, oxidative right. stress, this is why I want people want to try it because maybe maybe that's that one little tweak that's going to be the difference between baby or no baby. A couple of questions for you regarding the PRP then. In Canada right now, are, is all of our centers doing the ovarian PRP or just the lining PRP right now? Uh, just the lining PRP. I'm not aware of any centers in Canada that are doing the ovarian PRP per se, though. And then with the lining, like somebody that's got the, the Ashermans and scar tissue, is this like a treatment for adenomyosis or Ashermans, or is this the treatment that you would do post-surgery or both? So, so probably both. No one really knows the right answer to that. So in, in patients who, who've been diagnosed with this before, who have gone through a failed embryo transfer, it's one of the tools you could think about prior to doing or in the next embryo transfer cycle to try and improve the likelihood of good outcome. But really, that's probably one step too late, again, just on the basis of how we know PRP works. And we know, for example, when people do extensive ablative laser treatments on their face, for example, these studies have been well done in aesthetic and plastic surgery. If you apply PRP, once you've had an ablative laser, the healing phase is much faster than if you just let the body recover on its own. And that's because you've replaced all the regenerative healing properties from PRP. So it makes sense that if you were to do some kind of surgical intervention in a patient that may result in scarring of the endometrium, that infusing PRP in that sitting might reduce the chance of developing Ashlands or adhesions or damage to the endometrial lining. The other area which I often wonder and surmise about myself is patients who've had chronic granulomatous infections such as TB of the endometrium. We don't see a lot of that in Canada or in the first world, but certainly in the third world where I trained, it would be considered an anathema not to check every patient for TB because TB is so endemic in the third world. That's it and done. Where I work in Surrey, there is a large immigrant population. And so we often forget that just because someone lives in Canada now and carries a Canadian passport does not make them a first world person in terms of their risks that they bring from a country of origin. And so we actually do pick up a fair amount of tuberculous endometritis in patients that have come from areas in the world where it's endemic. And so that led me to wonder whether PRP may have some benefit in the setting of, uh, of the healing post-TB as well. And I'm going to ask some questions around the PRP, which you may or may not have the answer, but based on your experience of using it in your clinical practice, and I know you affiliate with another cosmetic clinic where you use a lot of PRP. So I know you have knowledge around this. I'm going to tie it to where I have knowledge on photobiomodulation, low-level laser therapy, and how I think it for fertility is there are studies where they show that if you're doing the PBM, the laser treatments leading up to surgery and post-surgery, there is less pain, inflammation, swelling, and quicker recovery. So they don't just do it post-surgery, but they also prepare the body. So leading up, there's some treatments, and then immediately after surgery, there's treatments, which is why I often encourage our patients that we're seeing through your clinic leading up to retrieval, that we're doing the treatment to support the egg quality, that's our goal, but immediately after the retrieval to help with blood flow, edema, right. we want to do it just for the recovery area. So here's my question why I, I brought up the research of laser therapy, wondering with PRP, it sounds like they're doing it mostly post-treatment versus leading up to it. Patients educate us when they're doing new things that are not totally a standard uh, treatment. So PRP right now is not a standard treatment for, for egg quality. And I have patients that have researched this and they looked at the, the American way and the, Greek, the way they're doing it in Greece. In the States, they say, have your IVF within three months of the PRP because it will lose the effect, apparently. In Greece, they don't want you to do the IVF until three months after they've done the PRP. Can you think about what you know from as a reproductive endocrinologist and how you understand the mechanism behind PRP? Theoretically, when do you think people should do IVF based around PRP based on how you understand follicular genesis and the effect of PRP? 
I mean, I think the original word that came out from the Greeks was really based on their early studies that showed they started to see traction and effect on improvement in antral follicle counts and an AMH, so antral and anti-malarian hormone levels, three months after the PRP was injected. And that kind of informed their decision-making around that. The, the big group in, in New York that's doing their studies uh, and maybe it's because the protocols are a little different, started seeing an effect quite quickly after the first PRP. So I think that it's a difficult one to tease out because, again, we don't have a standardized approach to when we do it, how much we inject, where you inject it, whether you do just the subcapsular injection or whether you do that plus bathe the ovaries in a pelvis full of PRP and what that effect may be. And I, I just don't think we have the numbers in the study to know for certain. Personally, I, I think that if somebody's had PRP done for ovarian rejuvenation, I think I would watch the biomarkers very closely and suggest, I, I, I probably would not suggest doing IBS immediately. I would hold off until I start seeing some improvement in either the, the number of antral follicles or the AMH. And when you see those starting to improve, then you know that your PRP's had some effect. But intuitively for me, the three months mark makes more sense than immediate. And you know, I think about it, Again, how we're playing with it with the low levels of laser therapy and just our our preconception nourish the soil at acubalance using the diet, lifestyle, herbs, acupuncture, and low level laser therapy because follicular genesis on average is about a hundred days, right? Right. From that from primordial follicle to egg retrieval or ovulation. Right. That if I went abracadabra, so I inject with PRP, I would expect the most benefit those follicles would be experiencing is a hundred days after abracadabra. Right. So that's why I thought three months later, because the follicles have bathed in that environment for a hundred days versus they only had a, a week of, but again, the research will tease that out. There's what I think, and then there's what we know and thinking is that's right. now we're just speculating, thinking on theory, which we know doesn't always translate into clinical that's, outcomes. That's right. <laughs> and with the ovaries, the other question is, do you do one treatment? Do you do one a month? Do you do three treatments? No one really knows. Is yeah. one, is two better than one? Is three better than one and two? And I, I would again speculate what I'm seeing with the low level laser data and what I'm seeing with acupuncture, it's accumulative, it's momentum. So you're keep bathing. It's like, because again, going back to our soil, I don't water the plant and say, now it's good. I continually water the plant. And so I would suspect that it's one of those things that you're doing over that 100 days. And I don't know how often it would be for PRP, but it sounds like you want to keep bathing the ovaries right. in this beautiful soup of rejuvenation, right? You give somebody one pill of Clomid. If that was somebody's thinking, all the research would show that Clomid is a very poor ovulation drug, right? Right. But you found that dosage. I just, it's just, again, thinking, speculating. I would imagine you would need several doses of the PRP to get a dramatic right. result. Are you guys, because our role when we think about it with the acupuncture herbs is we feel that we're somehow supporting the follicle, the follicles, which are like the baby house. It's the follicles, mitochondria, blood flow, which is then going to support the maturation of the egg. When you're doing the PRP, are they just doing it to the ovary or are they actually injecting into the, like, are they reaching, how are they reaching the follicle? Like, is it... So the, the protocols have all just called for immediate subcapsular injection. So that's where the peripherally cited um, primordial follicles are. And, and obviously there will be some absorption of the PRP from a very vascular structure, which the ovary is into the deeper layers. Yeah. But it's again, you know, the protocols are not, are not ubiquitous and they're not all the same. They don't all inject the same place, but they don't all do the same amount. And the one interesting one I think to watch out for is a, is a split study where they inject in one side and not the other to see, I think that would be really interesting where the patient acts as their own control to see if there's improvement. I'm smiling because there was a study in rats where they did the low level laser therapy. And so what they did is. They did one ovary, so they did the incision, pulled the ovary out, lasered the ovary, then sutured up, and then put the, the rat or a mouse through an IVF cycle. And the, the mouse that had the side untreated had better everything, quality, right. embryo quality, et cetera. But when you compare it amongst other rats, that the controls also, my understanding is even the other ovary did better. And I know this from laser studies that it has a systemic effect. So they right. did this with burns. If they burned two sides of the rat and only lasered one side, that one side did better than the other side. But when you looked at the rats that got burned with no laser, the side that didn't get lasered did, did better. better than 
Yeah. And so there is a systemic effect. Right. So who knows? I don't know how that works with, because I know laser has a systemic effect and, right. and we think sometimes things are isolated or very separate, but we start to realize when you treat one area, it has a cascade of events that affects everything. So, but I think that's a really interesting study and I would expect one side would do better than the other. I just hope there was a control that got nothing, right? So yeah. I could see that because it could be that systemic effect. So in general, in your practice, in your, in your clinic, again, you guys, you do IVF. You're seeing a lot. I think you have an interest and a lot of experience with endometriosis and PCOS. Yes. And again, now we're learning, you'll use your medical protocol, so drugs and surgery, but you also are interested in homeopathy. I know you like the naturopathic medicine, like we have at our clinic, yes. the IV therapy and low-level yes. laser therapy. I'm always a fan with the adjunctive therapies, like at, we have at AccuBalance, naturopathy, Chinese medicine, laser. We like to use them on ourselves because they're about health promoting. You don't have to be sick to right. use them. Like I wouldn't volunteer for an egg retrieval or for a, a heart surgery, right? Just for the hell of it. <laughs> you right. know? So I'm curious, do you, for yourself, use homeopathy? Do you get IV therapy for your nutritional IV therapy for yourself? Are you, one, are you a user of the, of the medicine that you tend to refer? And, and yes, like, abs absolutely. To? Particularly supplements. Like I'm, a strong believer in in doing a lot of things. I have uh, I have insulin resistance personally, and so I like to use things like myonositol and berberine, which as a step to try and avoid having to use a drug like metformin. Ultimately, they both had fairly profound effects on me anecdotally in improving my insulin resistance, which we shouldn't be really surprised about because there's there's actually good published evidence on both of those supplements in the settings. I use like NMN, which I will often recommend to patients with reduced egg reserves, you know, based on a lot of the work that's coming out of David Sinclair's lab at, at Harvard. He's a molecular geneticist who's shown, who's shown quite, he's done quite a lot of work on the situans or the, or the youth genes, the anti-aging genes, showing, you know, that as we age, we, we, we drop off in, in levels of NAD. Uh, and so using NAD supply agents like NMN can be beneficial in reducing the signs of aging. And there's quite a bit of research that's been done on animal models showing improvement in, in egg quality uh, if you use stuff like NMN. And it has profound anti-aging effects on, on human cells. So all of that kind of stuff I'd absolutely use for myself because there would be little point recommending patients use it if I didn't, if I didn't actually believe it worked. I, I agree with that. And, you know, there's times where we have our staff meetings in my clinic and there's a whole bunch of us hooked up to IV, nutritional IV yes, therapy exactly. and getting our glutathione. I'm sorry. And yeah, glutathione and, and NAC and that. Yeah. Yeah. Those are some of our favorites. And again, our patients coming in for the IV with the glutathione, sometimes vitamin D injections even. Right. With the NAD in our practice, our naturopathic physicians have been watching it closely because our patients are one and you know, they're searching the internet. And um, there's some, so far the supplements have been unstable. So we, until just recently, we haven't carried uh, an NAD supplement. And the IV form of it is just a long process, a little bit yes, yes. uncomfortable and super expensive. So we, we thought the marketing was more than the science at this point. We just hadn't gone for right. it. Although the patients there, there is a there is a lot of low quality supplements out there. My um my understanding again from David Sinclair's work um and looking at a lot of this myself is that the one supplement out there it's going to use a, a brand of it is it comes from an organization called DoNotAge.org and it's a yeah. UK it's a British company and they actually did allow themselves to be subjected to third party testing and monitoring and the results were fairly reasonably representative so. This is one of the biggest problems with, as you would know, with supplements and, and naturopathic supplements and medicines in general, is the lack of control over the companies that manufacture these things. So you could put 30 grams of nothing in a capsule and, and legally get away with pulling at 30 grams of something. Yeah. Um, and charge the earth for it. And no one would be any the wiser. Agreed. And we're, we're, for years, we've been looking. No, we're not doing the research. We've been looking at the research and naturopathic physicians have found an NAD supplement that kind of meets their criteria and the people behind it with the science and the rigor and the biochemistry. So I'll share that with you as well. Cause, yes, and I'll look, I'll look at the one that you have because it took us a while. We do the glutathione injection because that yes. works well. Yes. And it took us a while to find a stable glutathione supplement because it just wasn't stable. You know, Correct. 
And so we have that, but again, because we have the ability to do the injection either through the IV into the, the tube, or we can do it intramuscular. Most right. of our patients just come in and get the injection, although we do have the supplement. And now the NAD is again, that first scene or slowing down that biological aging. So I'm going to look at the one that you sh mentioned and I'll share with you the one that we've been looking at and, and maybe they're both great, but um, it'd be good to know that we have some uh, NAD options to, to help our patients and ourselves. Yeah. Cause I'll take it too. <laughs> well, sure. Sean, at the conference that we attended together, there was an interesting discussion about pregenetic um, screening, the PGTA, and uh, yeah. the value and the benefit of it. Can you share your takeaway and how you're counseling your patients, whether they, you think it's beneficial or whether they should or should not do the PGTA? And I'm asking you this because I know you don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. And so I know there's not a simple answer to this because it depends on the yes. person sitting across from you, but I'm curious what your takeaway was from that talk that we both sat in and how they were, what, what they were saying about PGTA yeah, and, what, so it, and is, what it is, maybe, maybe explain what it is. Okay. Well. So pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy is when you get an embryo to grow to the blastocyst stage, the stage ready for implantation in the uterus. And then our embryologist will take a biopsy from the outer cell area of the embryo, not the inner cell area that becomes the, the fetus, but the outer cell area that ultimately becomes the placenta and send that away for chromosomal testing to see whether there are chromosomal abnormalities. So oftentimes people will confuse us and think that PGT looks for genetic abnormalities. It does not. It's not looking for things like Tay-Sachs disease or cystic fibrosis or congenital deafness or blindness. It's definitely not looking at autism, which is not a single gene defect. What we're looking for here are numerical differences, such as trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome, and it's the list of all of the abnormalities. So we're looking for an extra or a missing chromosome. We know that all human beings have 46 chromosomes throughout their body and then 23 autosomes. So the sperm and the egg contain half the number of chromosomes because when the two come together, that makes up the 46 chromosome complement of a normal human being. However, during cell division, you can sometimes get abnormalities in that process that in which a cell will either lose or gain a chromosome, and then that leads to chromosomal abnormalities, many of which are lethal or not compatible with life and can lead to severe impairment. And so screening those out is attractive because in the first place, if you put back a chromosomally abnormal embryo, the body's first line of defense is just to not allow implantation to occur. So most chromosomal abnormalities don't attach. The second line of defense is that they do, but the body will surveil, pick up the abnormality and boot up the pregnancy in the form of a early first trimester miscarriage. And then very few of those abnormalities actually make it through to the second trimester where you then diagnose them as an abnormality and have to deal with them. So the attraction behind doing PGTA is that you would know upfront which of your embryos are abnormal. So you only put back a normal embryo which ostensibly gives you a higher chance of pregnancy because the embryo is normal, a lower chance of miscarriage, and then almost to take, taking away the chance that you're going to later on discover you have an abnormality. And in an ideal world, that would be so. However, there are certain caveats with PGTA. And one of them is that when you do the biopsy from the outer cell mass, you're not biopsying all of the cells. You're only biopsying a sample of them. And if you get an area of the outer cell mass that has, a, that has a higher constituency of abnormal cells, you may actually call this embryo abnormal when in fact it's not truly and vice versa. So you may get false positives and false negatives around this. And then you get the, this very difficult clinical scenario of, of a mosaic embryo, which is an embryo that has both normal and abnormal cells found. And in the beginning, we used to consider mosaics completely abnormal. Now we know that they're not. A lot of the mosaics, if you put them back, will actually lead to a healthy pregnancy. Is that because going back to our earlier conversation, we talked about how the body has an innate ability to heal. And yes, you're seeing that these embryos that don't look normal self-correct? Correct. They self-correct. Um, so the drive and the propensity for the human organism is to survive at all costs. And so you put back the embryo and if there's some abnormal cells, it will try to extrude them so that the normal cells will survive. And our clinic's experience along putting back mosaic embryos has been very much the findings of everyone else in the world. If you put back a mosaic embryo, it tends to be an all or nothing. Either they don't attach because they're abnormal and, and no one gets pregnant, or they do attach and the pregnancy tends to be a completely normal pregnancy. We've had very, very few 
mosaic embryos that go into the second trimester, what we've discovered in abnormality. It does happen, and obviously the surveillance is very high if you're putting back a mosaic. However, many of us might have started off in lysis mosaics and we wouldn't be any the wiser. And IVF before the, ge the genetic screening, you're putting back mosaics all the time. You Correct. Putting back untested embryos all the time. And in fact, everybody who doesn't require fertility treatment is probably having just natural conception. There may be lots of mosaics happening out there. It's just because we're doing a test now that we've created a group of embryos that we now are concerned about because they don't meet our definition of totally normal. But we're not totally sure what that abnormality's implications are long-term. The irony of PGTA, however, is that the very group who needs PGTA, which is older women, are also the group of women most likely not to make an abundance of embryos or blastocysts to test. The group of people who are young, who are more likely to make lots of embryos are the ones that are not likely to need PGTA because they, they probably are going to have enough normal embryos amongst them. And so this makes the take on it really difficult because if you look at a lot of the data, and this is what Bob Casper was talking about at the conference, really, if you're sitting in a situation where you've got three blastocysts and you put back one after the next, after the next untested, the live birth rate, the cumulative live birth rate in that group of patients is actually higher than if you test those embryos and put back selected because you may be throwing out embryos that are actually normal. And so it becomes a little bit controversial that we may actually be discarding embryos that are okay. And there's no great evidence in all of the PGTA literature at the moment that we actually have done anything to improve live birth rates by doing this. So we assage fears, but I'm not really, I'm not convinced in my own mind. I have a lot of the same reservations Bob Casper has, and I have a lot of the same biases. So it's a long, hard and difficult discussion to have with patients. But generally speaking, if I have patients who have less than three blastocysts, I will often advise them just to do an embryo transfer. That's the one aspect you're just looking at it scientifically. If you take in a more of a, of a broader aerial view of this, many patients need to have an embryo transfer in order to feel like they have psychologically completed their treatment. So you have a patient with significant diminished egg reserves who's maybe 42 and they're doing an IVF cycle because they feel they need psychological closure before they move on to a donor egg. If you get one embryo from that patient and you do PGTA and the embryo comes back abnormal, that patient is often driven to feel like, well, I got one embryo, maybe I should give this another kick at the can because maybe the next one will be normal. Or worse yet, they have a an, oh, they have a mosaic embryo and they transfer it and they don't get pregnant. They feel, I really should do this again. And so you start getting into this never-ending spiral of just one more time, one more time, what I like to call the infertility addiction syndrome, because it's very much like watching a slot player in the casino who thinks that that one more dollar in the machine is the one that hits the million bucks. No one can tell you it's not. Statistically, the likelihood is quite small, but it's not zero. And so you start becoming obsessed with the notion of chasing a positive pregnancy test rather than actually completing your goal, which was to have a baby. Um, and I often find that you can stop that whole bullet train by just putting back an embryo in a patient. And if they don't get pregnant, they feel like they have done everything that they can and they, are, they move on to closure a lot easier. So again, it's not just always about what the papers say and what the scientific correct or incorrect thing to do is. We actually treat the whole human being. And sometimes I think we lose sight of it, that what a lot of patients need is to be able to take that process to conclusion, have an embryo transfer, mourn the loss of their own ability to get pregnant and move on. And we it, sometimes take that away from them by not giving them an embryo. I, I appreciate you sharing that because that is the psychological part of it, of people moving on to donor egg because the donor egg they wanted to parent. That's how you said it. And that's where I'm resonating with. Their goal wasn't to do IVF. Their goal wasn't to get a positive pregnancy. Obviously, they wanted to do it ideally with their own eggs. However, they want to parent. And sometimes, what, how do you call it? The infertility addiction train? Is that what it's called? The infertility addiction cycle. Yes. So, yeah, the infertility addiction cycle. So you feel that you're enabling that sometimes by doing the genetic testing on these women that only have a few embryos. So they don't get the closure because I've shared on, on past podcasts, I've only seen one regret that is shared when somebody's done a donor egg cycle and it works is that they waited so long to meet this baby. Right. They wish they could have done this. They could have held this baby two years right. earlier, right? There was so a very that, large Scandinavian um, paper a little while back that was published on this exact 
which was the largest evaluation of donoring programs. And really, they set out to answer the simple question. Do people who, who do donoring cycles actually, are they content with their decision afterwards, yes or no, to break it down? And really, the data was staggering that this is exactly what emerged. The only regrets people have is that they didn't do this sooner. It's minuscule, single point, point something numbers of people who really wish they had not done donoring. Right. The vast majority of people were over the moon ecstatic with their decision to do it. Because again, everybody enters into this wanting to have a baby, wanting to parent. And then they become obsessed with the need for their own gametes to parent. And then when they lose that obsession and they actually have a baby and they realize that biology doesn't define parenting and they are as pleased as anything with the outcome and the data is there because this is how people will ultimately feel. And that's why I have a great deal of confidence to counsel people in the direction of donor egg when they're struggling with their own gametes rather than throwing down another twenty, thirty thousand dollars on a cycle we know we know is li- unlikely to be successful. And as you shared, having the transfer gives them that closure so they don't have to sit with I should have, could have, and having doubt. So they really feel that's right. that they can. On a daily out. basis, I have this discussion with patients that the worst case scenario you can ever be in is the double guessing yourself scenario, because it's a never, it's a question to which there is no answer. The what if, what if I'd only done what if, what if, what if, what if, and nobody wants a what if when they're 50 or 60 and looking back on their life, what you want to do is to be able to answer the question I did and I know. So I did a cycle. And I put back an embryo and I never got pregnant and I moved on. And you can just come to closure with that. But if you sit with the what if, what if that one embryo, what if we put it back? What if we did? What if, what if? It'll drive you crazy. And on the genetic screening, what I think I heard from you is that like five, 10 years ago, at least five years ago, everybody, they thought it was the holy grail. We solved, we solved it. And like everything, everything seems to be too good to be true. We always get excited and then we realize it's a little bit more complicated. And now it's one of those things that in most cases, um, if somebody's older and having less embryos, your take is it's probably, you don't see the benefit of testing them because put in the three, because if you test them and you get a mosaic, you may accidentally toss away an embryo that could have self-corrected. And so you actually have three chances versus one chance if you throw away two out of the three. That's right. And you give people an opportunity. And I don't know, I mean, everyone has their, their own take on this. The ardent PGTA converts and acolytes w- would have a conniption at the thought that you could not test a 40 plus year old woman. I have a different take on this. And I, I think that the data is quite clear that uh, live birth rates in that group of people is not higher. It was not made higher by testing them. And then there's always cert- certain situations. So I'm thinking of somebody that's having recurrent pregnancy losses and it's physically yeah. and emotionally traumatic and draining. This is where maybe you would consider this type of testing. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, I can share, I have a patient, I have a couple who, um, who are both in their late 20s who came specifically to see us because they wanted PGTA, not because they had infertility. And it was an interesting story because both of them actually had a Down syndrome sibling. They had grown up in a family with a Down syndrome sibling that was older than them. And both of them, as much as they loved their sibling, felt like they had for their entire life put their lives on hold for their sibling. And, and they just felt that when they had a child, they couldn't do this again. Not because they didn't love their siblings, but because they had a choice. They would not choose to do this. And they, they understood and realized that the likelihood of them having a Downs was quite small. But they wanted 100% assurance. And so they did PGTA for that. So that's a very different reason. But certainly one can see the, the rationale from their point of view for wanting to do that. And, that. and that's where, again, going to the beginning of our conversation where, you know, you're looking at the individual and you're not saying not to do this test. You need to see what people's needs and what their history that's is. Exactly and right. then you can make a recommendation. But in general, you're not as excited about this testing as we were five years ago. Correct. Because of the data. Because of the data. And as you said, you follow the data and you're open to integration because of your background growing up in South Africa, where it's different to our listeners because they're all over the world. But in Canada, U.S., naturopathy, Chinese medicine, homeopathy, most physician conventional trained, just not as open to it. Much more today, as we, at the time we're recording this, than it was when I started practicing in 2000. But you grew up in an environment where this is kind of the norm in South Africa and Europe, where people seeked out homeopathy and supplements from conventional or not. Am I understanding yes. that correctly? 
Yeah, yes, there was a lot more openness to alternative or complementary um, approaches. Yeah, and so if that was your background and how you, you grew up in the system, then that's why you are the kind of doctor you are that's very open and integrative. And I think I know because I get the feedback from your patients all the time, how much they adore you and appreciate the time you spend with them and the option you make available to them. Um, I hear it all the time. So thank you for being that kind of doctor. Well, that's great. Thanks. All right. So Sean, if they can find you through the Olive Fertility website, obviously. So they can go to olivefertility.com. Do you have anything for if on Instagram or social media for yourself that you want to share and I can put in the show notes or is Olive I, the best way to reach I you? I don't have anything personally on social media. I tend to be shy of social media myself. So the best way to find me is through the clinic. Perfect. So that's Olive Fertility and um, Sean's um, practice is in Surrey, British Columbia, Canada. And I'll remind our listeners that are here locally that AccuBalance goes on site to Olive to do the IVF and laser acupuncture before and after on site at Olive for your transfer day. And uh, we have that integrative approach where we cross refer to the Olive Fertility Clinic and we see their patients as well for, as Sean was sharing, the adjunctive therapies to leave no stone unturned and see if we can tweak something to help make the difference between baby versus no baby going towards the baby. So we, we enjoy that integrative approach that we've been doing for many years, Sean. Yes, yes, and uh, so so do we. I, I think it's a good holistic approach to treating patients. You know, I'm obviously well well versed in all the allopathic stuff that I need to do, but I'm a strong believer in more of a holistic approach, with not necessarily the most knowledgeable about those options. And that's why I have low a low threshold, as you know, to to refer to naturopathic colleagues and to yourself, like TCM docs and acupuncturists. I got a letter audience. Low threshold means. He does refer to naturopathic. Yes, that's right. Threshold <laughs> means I do it. I do it almost every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Sean, wishing you well, and again, thank you for joining us on the Conscious Fertility Podcast. Thank you, Lon. Take care. If you're looking for support to grow your family, contact AccuBalance Wellness Center. At AccuBalance, they help you reach your peak fertility potential through their integrative approach, using low-level laser therapy fertility acupuncture, and naturopathic medicine. Download the AccuBalance Fertility Diet and Dr. Brown's video for mastering manifestation and clearing subconscious blocks. Go to acubalance.ca, that's A-C-U-Balance.ca. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Conscious Fertility, the show that helps you receive life on purpose. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show and join the community of women and men on their path to peak fertility and choosing to live consciously on purpose. I would love to continue this conversation with you, so please direct message me on Instagram at Lauren Brown Official. That's Instagram, Lauren Brown Official. Or you can visit my websites, laurenbrown.com and acubalance.ca. Until the next episode, stay curious and for a few moments, bring your awareness to your heart center and breathe.